south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 272, covering the week of July 26th through July 30th, 2021. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Like our Gab page, because Facebook right now is no longer active. We don't know when that's going to come back. But right now we've got Gab, and so we're using that quite extensively. So like our Gab page and subscribe to our YouTube page where you can find all kinds of great stuff. And I mean that about the YouTube page. This podcast always goes there. But we also have a number of lectures from our summer schools, from our conferences. We also have our Abbeville U videos is what we're calling them, which are our little five-minute videos on a variety of topics. So these are great things. Our YouTube page is a treasure. So go on out and subscribe to that YouTube page as well. Also, while you're at abbevilleinstitute.org, where you can find a couple of social media accounts, while you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition, written by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. It's a great gift, and you get it free of charge just for giving us an email uh, address. So, I mean, this is how we keep up with you, right? Our email list is invaluable. It's the way that we keep in touch with you. So when we have our webinars, which we just had the one this week on Southern music, that's how you find out about them. Of course, we also keep in contact with you with our Daily Dose of Dixie, which is the articles that we publish on the website every day. So you get one of those five days a week. And I know some people have said that's a lot, but it's one email. And so if you click on that, you get the article. It comes to your inbox, right? So you don't even have to go out to the website. You just go to the inbox, click on that email and then click on continue reading it takes you to the website where the article is located so it's a great way for us to keep in contact with you and also for you to get good stuff in your inbox monday through friday also click on that shop tab at abbevilleinstitute.org you can purchase some abbeville institute apparel and we do exist on your generous contributions alone so if you like what we do you like the institute you like our webinars our podcast our videos our articles all of that comes to you free of charge pretty much the, uh, the webinars are not. They're, they're a little bit of money. But most of the stuff is free of charge. And so those contributions help keep all that other stuff going. And we're going to talk about that webinar in this particular episode because we, it was on Southern Music and we had an article that went along with it. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But I actually want to start with the Monday piece and then bookend it with the Friday piece. In fact, they go together. And the Tuesday piece on music fits in with that as well. But the the uh, Wednesday and Thursday pieces are a little different. And they're a little different on a theme. They're, they're stuff we normally do, but a little different on a theme because they focus more on political matters from the 18th and 19th century. But I want to talk about this Monday piece. It's by Casey Chalk, and it's entitled, Who's Your People? And this is a question that often comes up, it used to be the primary question, or where are you from, was the primary question when people would uh, introduce someone in the South. That was one of the first questions that was always asked. If you were in the North, generally it would be, what do you do? But in the South, it's, it's where you're from. And, and the question was getting to who are your people, right? Who, who do you claim to be your people? And when you look at this piece, and I think Casey Chalk does a tremendous job with this, and also, he brings in Eugene Genovese. If you don't read Eugene Genovese, uh, you're missing out. Genovese's The Southern Tradition is excellent. His Slaveholder's Dilemma is good. 
Uh, his mind of the master class is excellent. Roll Jordan Roll is excellent. It gives you a nice understanding of what the South was, the antebellum South. And Genovese was originally a Marxist, and by the end of his life he had come around. He claimed to be more of a conservative, and uh, but when you read his, his work, he really tries to understand what the South was and who Southerners were in the antebellum period, and he doesn't pass judgment on them. He just tells the story. And so you can come up with your own conclusions about who these people were. Were they good people? Were they bad people? Whatever you want to say. Genovese doesn't do that. He simply says, this is who these people are. This is what they thought. This is what they believed. And you take it for what you want. That is real history. That's what makes that history so important. It's not a polemic written by a leftist professor who's trying to uh, go out there and uh, find something critical about the South. And what I mean by that is that they're, they're trying to come up with some type of straw man that they can push over so how bad the South was. No, that's not what's going on there. The Genoveses are simply trying to understand who these people were. So that's what I really like about the Genoveses. But I think Casey Chalk does a good job of bringing that out. But he asked that question, who's your people? And then I'm going to go to the Friday piece after I go through this piece and bring that all together. So he said, who's your people? Though now somewhat rare, one still hears that question in Dixie, usually uttered from the lips of older or rural Southerners. Much is implied by that question. There is an implicit belief that one's extended family or clan, giving much of the region's Scotch-Irish roots, serves as an inextricable part of one's identity. Also implied is that one's clan says something about you, whether for good or ill. But perhaps most saliently, it communicates the fact that Southern culture is an important respects intrinsically communitarian and rejects a sort of radical individualism that has often defined the broader American ethos. So you're getting to that. He brings up the agrarian tradition, and um, that's certainly part of this. I was going back and reading some older publications, and I say older, from the 50s about the South. And from the 30s to the 50s, there was a certain attempt in the South to try to understand a Southern identity. You had it with I'll Take My Stand. You had it with Who Owns America. And then by the 1950s, in publications like Modern Age, for example, which was started by Russell Kirk in 1957, you had actually an entire issue dedicated to the South in 1958. And we're going to run one of the essays from that issue next week. Uh, it's, it's really good. But you had this wrestling with this Southern identity. What was it? What did it mean? And here we are, it's, it's close to 70 years later, and we're still talking about that. What is, what is it? What does it mean? And why is it important? So he says, Southern historians Eugene and Elizabeth Fox Genovese in their 2005 book, The Mind of the Master Class, devote an entire chapter to this quality of Southern identity. Titled, Between Individualism and Corporatism, the chapter explores the way Southerners sought to make sense of themselves, both as members of this of a particular American subculture and participants in a broader socio-political project. Like much of the Genovese scholarship, their expert research exposes the inadequacies of popular caricatures of the South, while also serving as a, a warning for those seeking to defend their way of life. By the 19th century, capitalism was accelerating the expansion of free labor and 
then transforming much of that freed labor into what Genovese's, the Genovese's call exploited and disaffected working class. The Southerners held to key tenets of individualism like property rights and re representative government, they could perceive the problem with individualistic economic and social developments. Southerners began to debate how they might, in the Genovese's words, tame what was beginning to look like a permanent revolution. And this is interesting because, again, this is part of what Southerners were wrestling with modernity in the 19th century. Were they modern? Were they not modern? And this is the slaveholder's dilemma. I mean, essentially, that's what he's going through here is a very small little book he wrote in the 90s, The Slaveholder's Dilemma, where he got into this idea that Southerners were progressive and they were wrestling with that element of their life, trying to also incorporate the, the very conservative elements of their society in it. And I think this is where we get into this idea of tradition. How do you do that? How do you live in the modern era with what we see all around us on a regular basis and still incorporate those parts of tradition in it? How do you do that? How do you maintain those traditions? And are they even worthy of being uh, maintained? This is something that we often talk about. What and, and we've had people ask, young people, what is it about the Southern tradition that would appeal to young people? And Casey Chalk is a young man. And so this is why I like it when Casey Chalk writes for us, because he's wrestling with these things too. What is it that we can find in this older tradition that we can still use in 2021 as a young person. And that's something that we all need to be wrestling with. Is it Christianity, which of course is dwindling in America? Of course, that's something valuable to hang on to. But Southerners were not alone in their adherence to Christianity, of course, though they were uh, much more rigid in their adherence to it, longer than others. Was it agrarianism? Is that something hanging on? And what does that even mean anymore? Is it just simply a small little farm in your backyard, a little plot of land that you, that you plant some tomatoes in? Even in that way, and this is something that's interesting, if you go back and look at 19, the 1950s South, 1940s South, the 1930s South, but really in that rapidly industrializing South, the South led the way in a new type of labor where you had uh, not just the paternalist instinct where you have uh, you take care of your workers because of course that and that was something certainly the South recognized in the late 19th century. We've talked about that, the Callaways, for example, uh, who were pioneers in that. And of course, Southerners at servant leadership, that type of thing, you know, Chick-fil-A is from the South, Thesis. Uh, Aflac, these southern companies which prided themselves on servant leadership, which is the Bradley Company out of Georgia, servant leadership and treating your workers like people instead of like machines. But that's certainly part of it. But southerners, when they had these mill towns, made sure that people had a little plot of land so that they could farm. Because most of these people were coming off the farm. Now, a lot of them said they, they loved being in the factory more than the farm because farm work was unpredictable. The factory, you got paid. And I'll never forget reading, there was a, an image I saw of a little girl working in a cotton mill in the late 19th century, early 20th century picture. 
and there was a story to go with it. And she said that almost all her family worked in the cotton mill, and they loved it because they didn't have to worry about the next harvest. They got a paycheck. And so Southerners were willing to give up that independence of farming for the regularity of a paycheck, even if the work was dirty and dangerous and they had cotton lung and everything else that was better than the unpredictable nature of farming. And so you have this wrestling with that, the new world and how it applies to Southerners. So people like Callaways would come up with ways to make sure that 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 element of Southern life, that paternalistic element, that labor relationship was still there. But how does this work? So you could say labor, our view of labor, very Southern view of labor is something that's important. Of course, literature, music, these are things that are worthy hanging on to in the Southern tradition. The Southern political tradition and decentralization, which Southerners held on longer than anyone else. It doesn't mean that they were the only ones, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this week. It doesn't mean they're the only ones that believed in decentralization, because they weren't. They actually believed in the Union more than decentralization, at least early on. But only if the Union did what it was supposed to do. So that's an interesting part of this. And so he continues, Casey Chalk continues, one answer was to reject the radical individualism popularized by liberal Protestant and former Protestant thinkers. Episcopalian Bishop Thomas Atkinson of North Carolina, for example, censored New England's hyper-individualism. He further argued that rampant violence in northern cities could be attributed to institutions that, quote, have fostered the spirit of individualism, that sense of the duty and right of each person to judge for himself what he is to do or refuse to do. Prominent Presbyterian theologian Robert Louis Dabney likewise attacked liberal Protestantism's tendency to promote rebellion against tradition and orthodoxy. In his later years, he even admitted that the Catholic Church was more effective at combating this. So it's a... The South certainly had this rugged individualism as part of its DNA, but how do you reconcile that with community? Now, this is interesting because New Englanders, of course, early on had a much more communal view of liberty than individual liberty. And by the 19th century, they had adopted a little different view. And I think in part because of labor and other things. The Southern clergy were largely in agreement regarding the evils of individualism. They diverge over where to place blame. Bishop Richard Wilmer of Alabama railed against the disciplines of uh, disciples of Christ. Excuse me. Individualism bursts into full bloom under their favoring auspices. Every man can be a preacher, and every woman, if she claims the privilege. Ironically, the disciples offer the same indictment against others. Disciples, preacher, and professor Frank Carmack declared, quote, "Under the new covenant, men cannot live to themselves, but they are connected together in a social capacity. The kingdom of heaven is eminently a social institution." Some Southern Protestants sometimes went so far as to question their own ecclesiastical traditions, which originated in Martin Luther's rejection of Catholic hierarchical, hierarchical supremacy. The Genoveses explained, quote, Protestant Southerners increasingly wondered aloud, did the Reformation bear responsibility for the individualism that was now careening out of hand? Multiple contributors for the Richmond-based Southern Literary Messenger expressed increasing reservations about Luther's bluntness and incoherence and vanity. Other clerics could admit that their own ecclesiastical history could be authoritarian in ways that seemed similar to the 16th century Catholic Church their forebears had rejected. Episcopalian Reverend William Baker Stevens remarked ironically that Carolina was settled by Huguenots escaping from papal bigotry, Maryland by papists, 
retiring before Protestant intolerance. Southern's clerics are not the only people that emphasize the family over the individual. Almost every Southern writer of the period followed Aristotle, insisting the social basis of individuality, noted the Genoveses. The Southern social bond individualism, as Richard Weaver calls it, arose in part from a socially grounded folkish attitude that held that I'm as good as any man, and was, which was predominant among yeomen. Some of this can be attributed to the Scotch-Irish spirits of Celtic clans, which prompted everyone to rally around local leaders and promote community coherence. Now, again, this gets into that the, this backcountry way, which was fairly uh, it was natural liberty, uh, but it was clannish. I mean, your your family meant something, and that liberty was tied into the clans, the families of the backcountry. And it didn't. I mean, there was certainly a commonality between the backcountry of North Carolina and the backcountry of Pennsylvania. You could find it. Tocqueville, who many antebellum Southerners read with respect, observed that, quote, democracy makes every man forget his ancestors, but it hides the descendants and separates his contemporaries from him. It throws him back forever upon himself, alone, and threatens to end the, in the end to confine him entirely within the solitude of his own heart. Few Southerners desired this, viewing themselves rather as an as a inseparably bond to households, communities, and states. Thus we read University of Mississippi Chancellor Fre- George Frederick Holmes decry what he calls, quote, lawless ascendancy, the riotous license of the reason from which we suffer, the want of any moral authority, the disregard and contempt of religion, except so far as it is the plastic creature of our own capricious interpretations. Holmes bemoaned an America that increasingly seemed to recognize no authority except individual reason as articulated by utilitarians like Herbert Spencer. The Civil War in turn intensified in Southern preaching against radical individualism. Reverend Richard DeVoe of Alabama encouraged the reunification of self-dependence and self-reliance. Reverend William Wheelwright told Confederate troops in Virginia that Self was at the heart of the Confederacy, Confederacy's difficulties. Reverend William Hall decried extreme individualism as an assault on the social order and declared that the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers should be re- not be reduced to modern individualism, not used as a cover for theological relativism. And so this spirit of community carries on after that. He says, in the writings of agrarians like Robert Penn Warren and Alan Tate, we can see the warnings of socio-political transformation that has created not only the New South, but the Rust Belt, the increasingly marginalized and disparaged flyover country. The, the Genoveses explain, quote, individualism, even its, in its peculiarly conservative southern form, tends to place the state in hostile relation to society's discrete units, individual and corporate. Here lies a principal germ of the disintegration of community itself, for a competitive marketplace turns its losers over to the state for the protection and succor that the, their communities cannot provide. The Republican South remained rent by the tension between a preference for laissez-faire economics, hostility to the concentration of political power, adherence to an individualism of heads of families, and a simultaneous preference for the implicit corporatism of the family as a fundamental institution of society. Therein lies a tension that remains both in the South and across our nation. Admiration of unfettered free markets and free-spirited individuals making their own way, yet a recognition that these same libertarian forces tend to erode communities and leave economic losers who are isolated and adrift. We want to be free, but we also need stability and a sense of place. 
And this is the tension of, I think he points it out fairly well here. How do you reconcile markets with the essential building blocks of a strong community, which is important. If you look at, and I think this is the the managerial class, and you have, I've talked about it on my own podcast. If you don't get that one, it's Brian McClanahan show, and um, I've discussed this there. But you have these, um, and it's been identified as a group of people who have no anchor. They're nowhere. They're Americans that have no people at all. They come from a bourgeois type of fake society. They have no anchor, no place. They're nothing. And so they travel around. They live here. They live there. They do all these things. And this is attractive to a lot of Americans. And anyone can see the the uh, allure of it, right, to have that, that economic freedom, that uh, to go and see things and, and be places. And, and humans always love to do this stuff. But when you have no people and no anchor, you become a plastic thing. You become consumerism. That's all it is. You're consuming. You're building a house here. You leave it in three or four years. Then you go live in a house here. You leave it in three or four years. You don't build generational wealth. You don't build generations of people anchored in a place, in a culture. You just become whatever the mainstream is, and therefore you fit into that because you don't want to rock the boat. So you don't have an anchor somewhere that creates these traditions, that anchor you to something and something important. He says, much of the increased interest in one's own one's ancestry and genetics reflects his desire to know the answer to the question, who's your people? It's simply knowing from which countries or provinces one's ancestors came to the United States is insufficient to satisfy this longing. We desire a sense of belonging, a knowledge that the places where we live, work, eat, and pray are not simply anywhere, but somewhere. A place whose identity has something to do with us and God willing, our progeny. And this is important. How do you anchor yourself in a place? You have to have families that will do that. And you have to have vibrant economies that will allow it to happen. And you got to believe in people. And I think that's important. And that's something that I like about this piece by Casey Chalk. And then, of course, bookending that, we have the piece on Friday by Travis Holt, The Wild Man. And this is just a fantastic short story of his family. And in fact, I want to get to the conclusion. I'm not going to read the story. He says, As I sit here in the shade of an oak, listening to that old familiar wind that haunted my childhood, I can see him still, leaned up against that 59 Ford, smiling like a devil in his slippers and stylish shirt. A man who was part of my people, but one I never met. A man, even though he was gone nearly 20 years before I was born, was still here in stories and spirit. As my people age, listen to what he says, my people. As my people age, they became more open to discussing him, perhaps to keep the memory alive and warm. I began to know this strange man in the black and white photo and found he was no stranger at all. My great-grandfather passed in 1998. My grandpa Glenn told my great-uncle Dennis that they would have to really watch after their mother. You remember how it was last time, was all he would say. The two sets of troubled, knowing eyes met and agreed without a word. My great-grandmother died in 2009 at age 89. 
She is buried only a few feet from Stanley's grave. I write this in memory of those who came before me, those I learned from, whether I know them or knew them or not. They are my people, and they shall always be remembered. My great-grandfather would always tell his kids and grandkids, careful out there on them roads, it is so dangerous. Truer words were never spoken. So listen what he said there. These are my people. So Travis Holt is a young man. He's not, he's, he's, he writes great stories, by the way. Storytelling, which is really good. It's one of the part of our summer school that Barbara Marthel did a little workshop on. Storytelling. Southerners have always been good at storytelling. Black and white, doesn't matter. Southerners. And uh, she does a good job telling stories, and she was trying to, to get people to think about this. Tell a story. And how do you do it? And I think Travis Holt is just a master at this. He's just telling a story here, but he's telling a story about his people. And the question was asked by a young man to us, posed a question, and we'll answer this more carefully in some other things we do over time. But what can millennials, how can they relate to this? Well, here's Travis Holt. He's essentially a millennial. And it's that attachment to people. So as people start to find, and they go back and they look at their history, and they go into it with an open mind, and they believe that we just need to understand them and not condemn them, that is how you start attaching to the Southern tradition. You are from a place and a people that did heroic things. doesn't matter what the other people say about them. They were good and bad, certainly. Every, every person is. But they did heroic things, amazing things. And when you find that those are your people, that's your blood, well, then you really can't hold them in contempt any longer. I think that's one of the keys, the anchors to understanding what's important about the Southern tradition because no people, as Casey Chalk points out, have been more interested in that lineage than Southerners because it ties them to something and those traditions become important. And those people become important. The past isn't dead. It's not really even the past. That's William Faulkner. So when you look at music, for example, and Tom Daniel wrote a really great piece, What Makes This Musician Great, Dwayne Allman. He kicks off a series. We're going to run one of these probably for the next like 30 to 40 weeks, once a week as he produces them, or once every other week as he gets them there. And this was our webinar. If you don't go to these webinars, you're missing out. By the way, go to Abbeville Academy if you want to catch up on any of these old webinars that we have. This is our seventh, I believe, we've done already. Seventh webinar. Amazing. We've gotten that many. Maybe it's the eighth. Uh, amazing. We're going to do one of these a month. And this one was on music, and it was really fun. Um, they're only you know, maybe 10 bucks. I mean, we, we don't know if we're going to set that price in stone, but right now they're 10 bucks. And uh, it's great uh, because you get an hour of time with a speaker like Tom Daniel, who's a great Southern music historian. And we had a conversation uh, for about half the time about Southern music. It's something I love, too. But when you look at Dwayne Allman, I mean, he's from a place. It's Florida. And that, that place influenced the music. It, and, and Southern music, which is American music, couldn't have happened anywhere else, as Tom makes clear. And that's why he's going to do this series on Southern music because... It had to come from the South, all of it, whether you're talking about rock and roll, rhythm and blues, country, blues, jazz, all of it. It had to come from a place and a people. It couldn't have come from anywhere else. And so this is where tradition matters, just like food 
comes from a place and a people. Literature, in order to tell a good story, as Travis Holt does, it has to come from a place and a people. It can't just be fabricated. It has to be based on something real or no one believes it. In other words, it has to be authentic. That's the thing that, to me, that always made Southern music great was authenticity. You can tell when you get on a modern country song and some songwriter wrote it with a little lick that people are going to like and it has a good backbeat. And so the music part, oh, that's fun. But the music, the lyrics are not authentic. You can tell the difference, for example, between a mainstream country song and Brent Cobb, whose lyrics are authentic, or a mainstream country song and Whiskey Myers, whose lyrics are authentic. You can tell it. There's a difference. It's authenticity. You can tell this is what the outlaws were all about in the 70s. It was authenticity uh, uh, compared to what was going on in mainstream country music, which wasn't authentic. At least they didn't think so. Authenticity matters. And so for people that listen to music, that when you hear uh, a southern band sing about a place, even if not from that place, you still believe they are because they're authentic. And so let's wrap up this week with a, the just a brief discussion of the two other pieces. And we could do just a whole episode on these pieces. I mean, sometimes you know, we have so much good stuff and so many things to talk about, it's hard to get through. But the Wednesday piece was Disunion Sentiment in Congress in 1794. This is a story I love to tell. And so we have this nice essay on it that was written uh, around the turn of the 20th century by Gaylord Hunt, who was a historian... Uh, published works on James Madison, the founding period. But he tells the story of how when John Taylor of Caroline went to Congress in 1794, and he was confronted by Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King. And both men, who had been part of the process of drafting and ratifying the Constitution, one or the other, cornered, King, cornered Taylor and said, hey, look, this union is not working anymore. Let's... Agree to separate. And he tells a story, and Helen tells a story here, and they focus on the commercial problems. It wasn't slavery at all. This is commercial problems. These were political problems. And they thought that they would have an amicable separation. They didn't need to have something be vicious here. There didn't need to be any coercion. They just needed to agree to part ways. And so these New England leaders said this. He said there were other essential differences between the extremities of the Union besides the debt. So they're talking about financial problems. They had never thought alike and never would think alike. He has been narrowly watching Madison's conduct and was convinced he had some deep and mischievous design. Though he would be willing to decrease the army in the course of another year, he was not willing to open a land office and saw no remedy for existing evils but a dissolution of the Union. So here you have New Englanders saying, look, there are things that we will never agree on. Let's just agree to disagree and part ways. This is 1794. 1794. The Constitution has only been in effect for five years. 
Five years. And they're already talking. New England is talking about a dissolution of the union. That's amazing when you think about it. You think about what was going on here and how people were already recognizing, hey, this union is broken in 1794 and that they would never agree to agree on anything. You wonder if, and Taylor resisted this. He said, look, we can't do this now. You wonder if people had actually been, had to have a crystal ball. Taylor would have said, yeah, let's get out now. Let's not go through the war that's going to happen. Let's leave now. Let's just put this thing aside now. They couldn't see it. They couldn't. King and Ellsworth could see it. I think they were more prescient than John Taylor at this point. They couldn't see it. In just 70 years, you're going to have a war that's going to kill a million Americans because the two sections were so different on a variety of things. Who's your people? Until next time. <laughs>